Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with our first new interview of 2023 here in episode 332. And it's part one of my conversation with the percussion professor at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as freelance percussionist Erin Elsner. We'll get to her shortly. First up, the good and the bad. And we'll start with the good, the wild sports weekend that just occurred. Obviously, people in mid-Missouri were pretty excited this past weekend. Mizzou's men's basketball team beat number 6 Tennessee on their home court on a 35-foot buzzer beater. That was very exciting. The men's team this year has been a real joy, and the local folks have really taken to them. It's at this point that I will completely ignore the game they just played at Auburn. The bigger news, of course, is that the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl for the second time in four seasons in a pretty exciting game and win over the Philadelphia Eagles. That does have the letdown of a late-game penalty call pose a shadow over the end. In any case, it's been pretty fun to get behind them locally, as well as to see one of their linebackers, a Mizzou alum, Nick Bolton, score a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Interestingly enough, I see students all over campus wearing Chiefs gear quite prominently. And it's nice to be behind a team that's pretty good. Unlike my New York Jets, who, well, they do Jets things. So that's the good. The bad news, unfortunately, is having to talk about another mass shooting, this time at Michigan State University. It's rough to have to think about safety at a large public state institution of higher education, which is what Michigan State is and what Mizzou is. It's another to think about the large spaces, buildings, and open areas at this place and to think that they could be spots of tragedy. And that's a frightening thought. I thought about this more as I read an excellent article on Slate.com by Nitish Pawa called College Students Are Not Doing Well. Pawa is an alum of Michigan State and labels the places where she used to hang out and enjoy campus in the article and how that brought people together. So this one was very personal to her. But what she points out is all the ways that college students are struggling, which brings everything back to Mizzou and the present. When it's explained that these are the same students who have been practicing active shooter safety drills since they were much younger, have likely had to survive an active shooter situation in their lifetime, and have had to deal with all the interruptions that COVID brought three years ago into now, it has been incredibly rough on them, much rougher than I ever had it when I was their age, to be sure. So I'm sad for all those directly affected by this and for the lives of the three students, Ariel Anderson, Brian Frazier, and Alexandria Werner, who passed as a result and their families and friends who are suffering now. And I'm thinking constantly about my current students who are having to process all of this. It is very difficult. I will post a link to that article on the show page for this episode because it is very much worth your while. Well, there's no good way to transition, so let's head over to our conversation with Aaron Elsner. Even though Aaron and I teach in the same state, we have not had a chance to meet until now. I'd been wanting to chat with her for a while, and funny enough, it turns out that so did one of my podcast cousins, Damon Grant, who's been on this show. Damon had her on his show, 
discussions in percussion very recently. So you should check that out. And now we know that Aaron is very familiar to the podcast game. Aaron's been playing and teaching percussion for quite a while. Her career has been centered in New York City for a period of time in Asia and most recently in St. Louis, which is one of the areas she also grew up. She continues to be very active as a freelance performer in the St. Louis region and has been teaching for a while at Webster University in St. Louis. And as you'll hear, she is a lot of fun to talk to and has a lot of great stories to share. So many, in fact, that we're splitting this conversation up into two portions. So this week, we'll hear about her job and her freelance career, her time in Asia, her musical family, her very active sports background, and her time as a student at the new school in New York City. Next week, we'll hear the rest. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on January 31st, 2023, and it begins right now. So Aaron, tell me what your percussion activities and responsibilities are at this point. So I kind of divide my time at this point between teaching and freelance performing. Um, I have taught at Webster University for the last 14 years. And I teach applied lessons. I direct percussion ensembles. I teach the methods courses, play in the orchestras and ensembles when I can. Um, I really enjoy being a part of all of the groups there when possible and playing amongst the students. I remember as an undergrad student myself, how much fun it was to play with different ringers that would come in and just getting to be in the section with them. And I, I really love that kind of collaborative uh, work with students. And then freelance performing outside of that, I do a lot of things at the Fox Theater in St. Louis, um, play different things at Powell Hall, tours that come through town. Um, I had so much fun. Last summer, I got to play the majority of the shows at the Muni in Forest Park. Um, so as you know, um, those are each one a, a major undertaking and you get to perform at these amazing uh, singers and actors and dancers and things often from Broadway in New York. So um, a very cool thing to be a part of as well. Um, and yeah, so that, that's really my responsibilities now are Prepping music, as we kind of talked about before we started this interview, I've got a lot of music sitting behind me right now to prepare for. I'm playing an upcoming show at the Fox. It's the the Final Fantasy um, music from the video game series. Um, prior to that, I just got to do a run of the Temptations show, Ain't Too Proud. Awesome. And that was very cool. Um, you know, I... Was, often, that, was that drum set or was that percussion? Well, it's an interesting question because yeah. the the show travels with their own self-contained rhythm section, um, and the drum set player was a guy named Quentin Robinson, who was amazing um, on that show. And um, then they pick up two percussionists, and so um, they're both mainly um, hand drums and auxiliary instruments and kind of groove instruments. And so, uh, you know, there's percussion book one and percussion book two. And so I got my book and I'm going through it and I get to the last few charts and it's like uh, head to stage, head to second drum kit. <laughs> and it's like, um, hang on a second. What? 
okay, interesting. And so at first glance, it's a little intimidating because it's like, well, wait, is this like, like I'm picturing like Tommy Lee, you know, there's some rotating drum set and I'm, oh, I'm slower down. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, they, you know what, Aaron, they didn't put that in the, uh, in the Motown books or the music. <laughs> That's exactly right. Rotating drum set. So yeah. <laughs> well, it just seemed quite the spectacle. It's like, and now there's like dueling drum sets. And so you look at it and it's like, okay, no, 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 no. This is just more, um, bringing the whole band on stage. And so, yeah, for the last three numbers, I got to go out and sit at a second kit with Quentin and play along with him. Um, and there's all kinds of stick tricks and things we did. And um, and then the other percussionist played congas um, on stage. And so, yeah, I mean, super fun. Um, there was choreography involved in that for, for the other uh, musicians uh, in the band. So each show, you know, brings something new and fresh and interesting shows like that obviously are so much more fun to play because it's, I mean, music of the temptations, how can you not like that? And so it's pretty good to me. Yeah. Getting to go in every night and hear that, you know, song list and, uh, and, and play with extremely talented musicians uh, was amazing. On the same in the same vein, a few years back, I got to do the the run of Motown here, and that was like brutal on the hands because it's like, all right, your book for this is basically there's about forty charts. It's all just heavy conga, heavy conga playing. It's like, okay, and that run was like a couple of weeks, and so it's like, geez, by the end, it's like, did I fracture my hands? Right. <laughs> You were you were shaking the you would shake the hand of everyone after and they would just be holding a catcher's mitt basically. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, huh? Yeah, it's nice to meet you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. She seems a little weird about shaking shaking hands and <laughs> or what the deal was. Um, so yeah, I just I feel very fortunate in kind of that balance. I always knew when I was growing up, I always knew that I wanted to play music. And I feel very fortunate to get to do what I love for a living. Um, I think you certainly understand this. Some people I mistake getting to do what you love and getting to play music as not real, like legit work, or it's not stressful, it's not challenging, which obviously is not the case. There's tremendous pressure often associated with it and lots of hard work that we all have to put into doing what we do. But I also knew really early on that I wanted to teach. Um, I love working with students. I love that relationship. Um, I love watching students evolve and getting to build relationships with them over years and then getting to go and see them perform. And I was just having this conversation with a colleague of mine a couple of days ago where it's like, isn't the greatest gift seeing your students surpass you? And, And this colleague of mine said, yeah, you know, I feel like I'm training you for my job. So when I retire, you can take over my position. And I absolutely agree with that. Like that's the ultimate that you want to give your students everything you possibly can and equip them with the skill set necessary to succeed. 
and 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 thrive in in whatever uh, path they they choose to take. How do you first get connected to Webster? So um, I was living in New York City for a long time, for about 12 years. And um, that's where I went to to college. Uh, I went to the new school. My last few years there, I took a tour, um, a music tour to Taiwan. And I was playing drum set in this uh, tour. And I had never been to Asia and it was amazing. I am a big Asia file. <laughs> and um, longer story short, I lived there for six years in the end. You moved to Asia. I, I ultimately ended up moving there. Yes. I went there on a tour, came back for several other jobs over the next year. Someone went on sabbatical there. And then ultimately I decided to take that leap and move there thinking at the time, sure, you know what? I always wanted this kind of life abroad for a minute experience. And, you know, uh, I had imagined it would be somewhere in Europe, but this is, you know, fate would have it that it ended up being in Asia. And um, just an amazing place. Have you been, have you ever been to Taiwan or, or anywhere in Asia? Um, I've been to India a long time ago. Oh, to, um, yeah. Not to, not to that, the Eastern part where. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh gosh. India. Jeez Louise. I mean, there's so many places there, India, China. Um, you know, I just feel like I scratched. And Korea. Yeah. Like oh. go down the well, list. In, in the six years I was there, I did get a chance to travel to many of those places. So I went to China many times, Korea, Japan, Indonesia, Thailand. I'm a big fan of Asian culture and I'm living over there thinking each year like, well, you know. Well, and, what are you, and what are exactly are you doing there? So I'm, I'm teaching at a music school and then playing locally with different groups and then just traveling and hanging out. So it was kind of my years of, I'd just been busting my, you know what? <laughs> you can swear on this, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. I felt like I was like cursing like a sailor in the in the last podcast I just did. So oh, okay. it's rain it in a little bit. <laughs> um, if you want to, it's, that's your call. Let time. it let it go. All right. All let right. it rip if you want. It's fine. <laughs> Let's let's get uncensored here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just doing the grind of like pulling my pit vibraphone around on a hand truck with like a Navajo blanket bungee corded over it for years on the subway, you know, and just doing the daily grind of like taking this go- this this job and never saying no and trying to, you know, make rent and so, you know, finally, just this time to have a little reprieve from that where I could just travel and be a bit of a wayfarer. Um, I went to, for example, Hong Kong probably 30 times and just took my backpack and went and stayed in hostels. And it was just a a, a, a real um, departure from things that I had done. And so um, there was nothing really at that time compelling me to uh it was around the time of the um, of September 11th in in New York City with the World Trade Center and so 
you know, there was uh, mass chaos in the city. And so I just felt like, okay, this is a, this is a time to be kind of remote. And then um, my parents were living in St. Louis at the time. And um, I, I came back to visit. And when I was back, I came back for like a month. It's like, okay, I'm going to be back here and, and spend some time and catch up with them. I felt like I hadn't seen them in a long time. And while I was back, uh, some people had said, oh, you're back. Are you free to play this gig here? And so in the time I was back, I did some teaching. And then, you know, through knowing people in St. Louis, it was like, well, hey, you know, if you would consider being here, there's some real opportunity for you to teach and play in St. Louis. And my family was here. And I thought, hmm, you know, when I had moved to Taiwan, I, I had thought it would be maybe a six month thing. It's six years. <laughs> maybe it's time to return. <laughs> I didn't think that this was going to be my kind of last, my, my swan song. So, um, so I decided, all right, I'm going to come back. I'll, you know, do a little teaching and freelancing and kind of figure it out. And I think at, in the, at the time in my mind, it was, and then I'll just go back to New York. You know, I'll I'll come back here, do a little bit, spend a hang out with the family for a couple months, and then head back to New York. And very quickly, I realized, you know, St. Louis is a great city, and there was so much opportunity for me to play and teach, and you know, really great people. And through pretty quickly, I started teaching a lot and playing a lot, and then just through those connections. I was offered the position at, at the university. So that's, it was just kind of word of mouth. Is that job one that has been a, has it been part-time the whole time? Has it been, has it been full-time? Like what's been the status of the position? Yeah. So it's been full-time um, because of kind of the um, amalgam of responsibilities involved. And so it was not initially a full-time position, but because of the number of hours and things that were all kind of under my purview, um, they created this position for me um, that kind of made it full-time. It necessitated a, a full-time position. So it worked out very well for me. How uh, long ago was that that they've, or was that right from the get-go? That was, well, um, probably a year or two in. Okay. Yeah, it was okay. You're, you know, you're here now. Let's see, you know, what you want to do, and you know, what was pre-existing, and uh, kind of the vision that we had for the program there. And I mean, again, I just feel like my entire life I've been extremely blessed, and and the support I got then and now from my colleagues in the Department of Music has just been tremendous. I, I just feel like, um, you know, pinch me and wake me up because I just work with some really amazing people that fully support the the percussion uh, department and, and, and what I have uh, wanted to do and um, equipment needs. And I mean, everyone's just been amazingly supportive. Yeah. And on that level, what's been the progression of the position, whether it's being either studio or ensembles or equipment that mm -hmm. you've kind of gotten to oversee in your time there? 
Yeah, it's funny. I wrote an article in in Percussive Notes uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was like the February 2020, 2021 edition of Percussive Notes. Um, they had asked me to write a piece on establishing a university percussion ensemble. And so in this article, I mean, <laughs> I didn't really have to fabricate anything because when I arrived, um, and I think this is often the case, you know, it never ceases to amaze me when we hear about our colleagues who teach and sometimes have to go to really small or remote schools. And it's like, oh, I had to teach the choir and the orchestra and the band, and they had one snare drum, right. you know, <laughs> and uh-huh. What do you what do you do with that and and where do I start? And so it wasn't far off at Webster where it was like, oh yeah, there's some there's some stands over there that we have, and you know three of them are held together with duct tape and uh, twine. And um, they won't close, by the way. I hope that's not a problem. (laughs) They have to stay at this height the whole time. I hope that's cool. Pressed against this, and it won't fall forward. I hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, it's true. Yeah, I know we don't have a concert snare drum stand, but if you kneel down while playing, uh, it it should be at about waist height. So, yeah, and so you you look at that and I think sometimes it's like those things can be daunting, they can be discouraging, they can be frustrating. It's like, oh, and unfortunately, not everyone gets to work with people that kind of share that vision or support what you do. And so sometimes it just really needs to be self-generated. And do you know who Keith Aleo is? Oh, yeah. yeah. I've had him on the show. Yeah. Oh, my God. One of my favorite people. He's the best. And we had him come out to Webster at, at one point. And one of the quotes that stuck with me that he said was, every challenge is a gift. And I haven't forgotten that since he said it. He probably forgot that he said that. Um, I'll remind him next time I talk to him. Um, but it's true that it so much of life and the, the things we face are really just about perspective. And you can look at that and at once see it as an opportunity or see it as a, an obstacle really just kind of taking taking what you have and going all right what what do we need and how can i how can how can we do this incrementally and how can there be this progression that is um reasonable that's possible um finding just being being creative not only in what we do musically but being creative in strategy and you know here here here's a perfect example um, I try to go to PASIC every year and I think it's so important and I really think it's uh, important for students to go if possible. Yeah. And I get that it's not always um, financially feasible for students to go to that. It's not cheap. I mean, it's not certainly not cheap for us, but it's still not cheap for you know the student rates. And so how we handled that was um, we had students speak with members of the student government and they just went on their own and said listen you know this is something we know that you have funding to support student um, endeavors and this is something we really believe is is worthwhile and so through that first year of just the students kind of again self-generating that that effort um, 
they got funding uh, to to fund their trip. And it was, you know, maybe five of them initially. And then that became a thing every year that was just put in place. And who I didn't even know that that existed. And so really just keeping your eyes open and keeping your mind open to know really like what are all the possibilities here and how can I capitalize on them? Um, is it collaborate collaboration with people from other departments? Um, I really love drum and dance things. And so uh, again, it's, it's the kinds of, it's taking the things that we try to impart to our students, like don't just sit there and wait for opportunities to come to you, you know, create them yourselves, uh, be proactive about it. And, and, and really, you know, um, implementing those ourselves in our own lives and our own, our own careers. And so, yeah, I, I just really have, have tried to maintain that approach to things, to the evolution of, to your, to, to your original question, taking stock of equipment. All right, well, we've got seven things. Let me start with a spreadsheet that spells out the seven things we have. All right, so let me create a five-year instrument acquisition plan. And how much, you know, are these things going to cost? What's reasonable? What are our immediate needs? And, you know, I think people pay a lot more attention when you show not only passion for what you do, but organization, a plan, um, uh, uh, willingness, little by little, and, and, and not expecting everything, you know, you can't just go to them and go, we need three, five octave marimbas, and we need another set of timpani, and we need, you know, it may, it may be five to 10 years before you're going to populate your storage closet with everything you, you wish, um, but that's okay, you know, each new thing is an improvement. Fantastic points. The The point about the students is always, I don't know when I realized that some schools have, that like student governments in area or some of the student associations are where you can find ways to get things funded. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, and, 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 and what a cool thing for the students to have to self-advocate. Right. And then to have to follow up and self-reflect. So there, I mean, it's so multidisciplinary in that regard where, you know, they're not just, you know, chilling and getting in someone's van and driving to Indianapolis. Right. They're having to go and, and uh, do some self um, soliciting, public speaking, negotiating, uh, writing, uh, planning, budgeting. I mean, it's, there's just so many important life lessons that come out of something like that. At Webster, are your the, the, am I to believe that that's percussion is not the only thing you do there, or is it percussion is. the only thing you do? There? It is. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so what that, that and that entails what? So uh, teaching applied lessons and then teaching methods courses and conducting the percussion ensembles. I also, um, over the years, had have brought in um, a lot of guests to do master classes. Um, I kind of just made this a thing, and I guess this is an, I, I guess this can work for anyone. But I, I kind of decided early on I wanted to bring clinicians in that, and, and boy, have we just been fortunate to to have so many amazing people 
um, share their expertise with us. But my my kind of personal deal for myself was I don't want them to just come in and lecture. I want it to be participatory for the students. And so in kind of um, setting a lot of these clinics up, my conversations in advance with these artists was, you know, we'd love to have you. Here's kind of what we're looking at. And also what is some way that in, in which you and the students can collaborate. And so it that varied. Um, sometimes they would just play in the master class. Sometimes we would perform, uh, do a concert with the percussion ensemble and have the guest featured, which is I know pretty standard at most schools. Sometimes we would have the guest perform and then uh and this was this was an interesting challenge and I I love stuff like this where it would be we would bring in let's say we did a couple of like almost heavy metal drum set players mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like okay well how are we going to incorporate the students into this it's like well they're going to play along with a track off their new record and we're going to listen to it and come up with some kind of interesting accompaniment to it and we'll present it and hopefully it, it sticks and they like it and they'll allow you to, to, to play this live with them in the clinic. And so approaching each of those two creatively where, um, you know, it's all about the students and student involvement and um, what's really going to benefit them. And so, yeah, Keith was, was, as I mentioned, uh, someone that came in and he was just amazing. He did a whole thing on, on crash symbols. Mm -hmm. And so it was a a side by side uh, clinic that weekend with Keith and then Jason Bittner, who is a is a speed metal drummer from the band Shadows Fall, and he's like known as you know he's got like the fastest feet, um, this side of the arch, <laughs> and. and and um, so they 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 touted it from symbol tasting to symbol breaking. Oh, so it was like yeah, it's like Keith is is the refined one, like the fine wine, and then yeah, there's the the rave after uh, with Jason. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was cool because. The student involvement in the clinic with Keith was they got to go up and be critiqued and test out symbols. And um, obviously he's a, a Zildjian artist. And so that was very cool that they're testing these amazing symbols. And then with Jason, um, they got to, to generate parts and do some improv stuff. And we created our own instruments and things for that. We built these cages with these chains and it was very, very cool. And I, I really love providing those kinds of diverse experiences for students. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's not where I thought it was going to go with the, with Bittner. I thought I was, I was going to be like, here are these Slayer tracks that yeah. I, Erin, you need to arrange. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say it that. It would be sweet. I mean, that would actually be pretty, that would be pretty cool. I'm sure. In fact, I'm almost certain that his manager was like percussion ensemble playing along with him. Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. Just give us a chance. Just give us a yeah. chance. 
And then it was a cool moment because we we really did put some time into creating these instruments and coming up with this stuff. And it was like, here's his Grammy Award nominated track. And so we he's like, fine, I'll indulge you and and we'll run it. And so they start playing and he's and he gets this big grin on his face and he's like, okay, okay, this all right, this this worked. This is kind of cool, actually. So it was, it was a cool moment. Nice. Yeah. Percussion ensemble, as you know, does not, it is not limited to uh, Bach. Right. Of course. <laughs> and then, and then uh, he handed you the mic and you were like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. The students would have killed for that. They would have, that, that would have been their favorite. They would have stopped playing and pulled out their phones and just started picture taking shots of that. That's exactly right. That would have gone down in history for years. Infamy, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about the university, because what's, um, you know, in terms of size, the kind of the place of the music department within it, the typical students that come to Webster, kind of some of those items. Yeah, so it's a smaller school. It's a private school. Um, It is really kind of the... Uh, arguably fine arts school in the St. Louis area. Um, you know, there's the University of Missouri St. Louis, which is a wonderful school, a uh, big state school here. Um, and then there are some smaller schools and, and colleges and universities. But Webster has always been kind of the arts, private arts college. Um, it tends to draw in uh, more local students that maybe want to um, live at home and go to school aren't necessarily ready to go far away. Um, surprisingly, we get uh, quite a few students from Illinois because we're so close to the to the river. And so students that have grown up um, and gone to high schools and things just across the river, um, this is a you know an easy choice for them because it's not that far. It's interesting, and I guess this kind of tends to shift the paradigm at schools. Um, not not limited to Webster. Um, going back, geez, 20, 30 years, there was a guy who was a, a, a big jazz educator and he was the department chair. And so when at when he came to power there, the jazz department at Webster really uh, was cultivated. And so Webster is is still very known, well known for its jazz program. And so there's a big um, uh, cache of students that uh, study jazz performance. And the degree there is actually jazz performance audio engineering. Um, so they get kind of this double uh, degree in knowing how to record and mix and master things. So it's pretty cool. Um, I, I found it really intriguing at first. It was like, huh, almost peculiar. Um, but over the years, I mean, the audio engineering department there also is is um, significant. And um, again, a conversation with a colleague recently about ways that musicians pivoted during COVID and and vulnerabilities that came out of that. One being musicians just don't know how to record themselves. It's like we learn how to play, we study our instruments, but then technology and all of these devices and the ways to um, navigate them is a whole other thing. And so 
You know, it was a stretch for many people to even figure out how to work Zoom during COVID. And then it was, oh my gosh, now uh, let's, you know, try to do these remote recordings and collaborate on these projects and, and trying to figure out, you know, how to use different microphones and different recording atmospheres. And so, you know, really the thing that, that came out of that, even for me personally was, geez, it's amazing that we, we work so much on creating this, you know, um, this uh, poignant sound and, and, and really don't spend really even any time on how to capture that and how to deliver that to an audience. And we kind of leave that up to other people. And so how empowering to have this degree program that, you know, equips those students in that major, in that track uh, with that, with that information. And certainly anyone can take those courses. And it's a, it's something that I started suggesting to uh, students when we talk about kind of um, providing opportunities for graduating students and, you know, what, how are you sending them off into the world and what advice are you giving them on how to survive or how to repay their student loans? And, you know, I always think about, you know, you should, you should teach a class in this and, and one that I, that I advised in the immediate years after COVID to those that really were adept at at recordings, like you should come back here and just teach a class for musicians and teaching in layman's terms, how to record yourselves. Um, Because I think, you know, a lot of people would take that, especially if you make it accessible and it's not like, oh, you know, you need to have full knowledge of a, of all these DAWs instead, just, you know, really make it kind of bare bones Yes. So there's the audio department, the jazz department, and then there's a a just sovereign, uh, let's just say classical instruments department. Uh, So strings and woodwinds and horns and piano voice. There's a huge voice department at Webster. And then there's a separate college conservatory under the fine arts umbrella that is the conservatory. And that uh, is basically theater, musical theater, um, stage direction, things like that. And remind me what part of St. Louis area is the university? It's in Webster Groves. Which is? Uh, well, oh, sorry. <laughs> Directionally, where is it? That is? Yeah, yeah. Webster Groves is 10 to 15 minutes from downtown. Okay. Um, so it's very conveniently located. The campus is beautiful. Um, Webster is also kind of known as the arts community within St. Louis. Um, lots of old houses and big trees everywhere. So it makes sense that the main campus is located here. Um, but it's also, you know, very accessible to getting downtown quickly, getting to the highways to get out of town quickly near the airport, um, there's on-campus housing, off-campus housing. Um, this came up the other day, and it's like a, a point of pride for me um, about Webster that I obviously am a very strong advocate for uh, study abroad programs. And mm-hmm. Webster has campuses in, gosh, I should I should look this up and know the most current number here, but um, all over Europe, Africa, Asia. Um, and most of the students take advantage of that, which is wonderful. That's awesome. 
Yeah. It's a, it's de- that is definitely a thing that has been uh, at Mizzou. It's, I don't want to say it's a tougher sell because there are definitely students who are interested, but it's not as much of the kind of the culture to go to, to do a study abroad. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I, when I think of Mizzou too, it's just like another great school pulling from different parts of the state and outside of the state. Obviously a major difference between the two being size and scope of things. Right. And so I think Mizzou, the, the difference um, might be uh, that there are other opportunities just due to the sheer volume of people and things there that satisfy some of those things, you know, within the the, the college at se- the university itself that Webster just doesn't have. It's a small school. And so if they want to have exposure to those things, maybe there aren't these courses or these guest speakers that are flown in from these countries, but you can go there. Let's back up, Erin. So where did you grow up? So um, I grew up, uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. My dad was in the Navy. And so um, this came up the other day and it's I think it's funny. And and someone the other day said, you know, you're whenever you bring this up, you're really dissing the people of Iowa. It's like, oh, that was never my intention. So I was born in Iowa, but we left there when I was an infant baby. So like four months old. And then I and then we never went back. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I don't it's odd because I do travel a lot. And often through, you know, like anyone through different airports or, you know, in road trips or whatever. And I've just never gone through Iowa. It, you would think that 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 I would being here in Missouri right now. But um, that just hasn't been the case. Not not willfully. Sure. Um, you just haven't had a need to drive to, let's say, Milwaukee, I guess. No. <laughs> no. <Or> Minneapolis. <laughs> no. And I would probably fly. <laughs> wow. See, that does sound like a diss now that you framed it that way. <laughs> no, 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 just due to time reasons, just the, oh, just expediency. Sure. But yeah, so uh, we moved around a lot. And then, yeah, so I was, uh, we were in St. Louis a little bit. And then um, I, I graduated after my junior year of high school and moved to New York. And so I really spent the the majority of my you know younger years being eight I moved there when I was eighteen um, and and uh, throughout college and beyond and so uh, was spent there and then Taiwan and then now back to St Louis. Do you have any family members that are in the arts? Yeah, so my dad was not a musician by trade. Um, he had a very militant father, my grandfather, who absolutely forbade him from becoming a musician. And so my dad would sneak around and learn to play the piano himself. And uh, he has perfect pitch and and then kind of taught himself to improvise and worked you know, these are these these sob stories, like selling like selling light bulbs door to door to make money to take piano lessons. But it's true. He still plays uh, piano to this day. So he had a full career in other things, but continued to play music and then couldn't wait until he retired to just do music full time. And so he he plays keyboard uh, now in a few different bands mm. and he plays harmonica. He plays tuba. Uh, he sings, 
but my my younger brother um, is a professional guitar player and he lives in Atlanta. We're very close. Um, you know, the, the awesome thing about our relationship is um, he's like just a couple years younger than me. We've gone very different directions musically, but we've, we always, we were so close and have always supported each other so much that we're like each other's biggest fans. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, he grew up listening to a lot of like hard rock and heavy metal. And because of that, I know who all those artists are. (laughs) And people will go, how do you, how do you know that? It's like, well, my, my baby brother listened to that all the time where he plays that stuff. And he was also very, very good at constructing and deconstructing things. And so I remember growing up with him, you know, taking things apart and putting them back together. And so um, as such, he currently and is amazingly gifted at creating pedals and amps and pedal boards and things. And so he works uh, in this ad hoc manner, making those things as well as as playing guitar. Curiously, is he is he in Atlanta for a particular reason? I mean, is, yeah, is one of the bands that like he- I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to be in a big city and he really loves Atlanta. He's been there for a while now. Um, I think it was he had friends there, but also at the time he moved there, he was in a band that was based there. And so it just made it easier for them to have this home base. And yeah, it wasn't long after that, like each one of them independently moved, like one to the East Coast, one to the West Coast. So in the end, they were separated yeah. And then he just really fell in love with the city and he uh, got married a couple of years ago. And so he and his wife have really settled there and, and I can't imagine him living anywhere else. He's really a big fan. Nice. <laughs> so when does the percussion bug hit you? So I studied piano uh, from an early age. And when people ask that, it's like, Oh, you know, when, did, when did you start studying piano? It's like, I mean, I don't know, probably three, four, five years old. Um, I remember my, I have an older sister too, um, but she's not a musician. But uh, when we were really young, my parents hired this guy to come to the house and give us piano lessons. And he was very weird. And he would, he would write these songs for us. And this sounds very um, sweet. He He would compose these songs and then he would, create these elaborate covers for them. Like he would design them. Oh. And he, yeah. And it was like, Oh, I created this song for you. It was, it's about an ice cream cone. And I've, you know, done this entire, there's this like, you know, Italian guy on the front with this mustache and he's holding, you know, this ice cream or whatever. And, <laughs> you know, on the one hand you go, Oh, wow. Like what a, what a nice gesture. And it's like, okay, what that's also a little bit, how, how much time does this guy have to do this? Yeah, this and can be creepy. Actually. It was, yeah. So when I think about it now, it's like, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's unfair of me. But so that's how it started. I started playing piano. And then um, I wanted to be in band when I got to middle school. And it was, you know, well, what instrument do you play? Well, piano. Okay, well, you can be in the percussion section then because you can play keyboard mallets. And... Um, and then immediately it was like, oh, all of these things. And it's it's something that I felt then that I still feel as impassioned about to this day is 
oh my God, the amazing part of what we do, just being all the sounds and all the instruments and boy, you know, the indigenous things that you can find in every country that they're still discovering where you can make different kinds of music and create different kinds of sounds and have different kinds of experiences musically with different people. And it is the, it's at once the most exhilarating and daunting as you know, because it's so easy to then become this watered down version of all, you know, it's like, I'm going to really get into Brazilian percussion. I'm going to study Pandero. I'm going to study, you know, tamborim. I'm going to study, uh, you know, all these things. And, and I'm going to go to Carnival and, and really master all these rhythms and doing the, the flips, you know, and, and, uh, and then it's like, oh, but then there's like all the African music and, oh, wait, there's different styles and drums from all the different regions in Africa. Oh, completely different. Okay, yeah, I'm going to really get into that. Oh, wait a minute. I want to study stuff from Cuba. Oh, that's a whole thing in its own right, just on the congas themselves. Okay, wait a minute. There's all these frame drums and Middle Eastern drumming and all of the different techniques on the rick and the tar and then the dumbak and and then go speaking of India, tabla. You know, you can spend an entire lifetime studying just the different sounds and things on tabla. Right. And it's like, oh yeah, and can you play all the latest uh repertoire on the marimba and and you know play all these crazy pieces and oh by the way now there's all these electronic instruments and can you program all of them and so it's something that has always kind of just kept this fire burning within me in terms of like there's all these different directions to go and all these possibilities yay it's it, it really feeds that thing in me that wants that variety um but geez louise to to try to manage all of it and maintain all of it and hyper focus on on very specific things at different times and maintain kind of a baseline skill set on everything is certainly challenging as you know yeah (laughs) sure once you got into percussion did you give up piano or was that still going on so I kept it up for a while. I was playing at a, at a pretty serious level when I got to high school. I was doing concertos and things, mm-hmm. and my piano. By who? Which concerto? Oh, Mozart, uh, Beethoven, Brahms. Oh, Brahms, nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. And my piano teacher was so you know yes to your point, and so it was like I was really, really getting into percussion. And I knew that I loved it a lot. And so it's like, I just don't have the kind of time to dedicate to doing both at a high level. I've got to pick and it sucked. And so I decided, no, I, I, I just, I love percussion too much. And so I had to tell my piano teacher at the time, you know, oh, I can't continue. And he was really devastated. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's still alive. I think he made teaching at Oberlin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but I did keep playing. And so I did, I would play for fun Mm -hmm. and I did a lot of accompanying. I, I accompanied a lot of students. Yeah. Um, and so that was a fun thing to do. It's like, oh, well, I need an accompanist. If I'm going to play this solo, I'll play it. Um, I accompany students in juries still a lot today. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, I try, I try to keep it up. I do enjoy playing the piano a lot. Um, I tried for the first time during COVID, I took a bunch of jazz piano lessons because it was something I had never done and always felt like, oh, I'd really love to kind of hone my skills here. And boy, my piano teacher was so forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, yeah, you got it. It's like, uh, no, I don't. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do I though? <laughs> She's like, yeah, we're going to start with take five and you're going to solo in the middle. It's like, uh, hang on a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she, yeah, she was just great. And I mean, that's another thing that I think has has worked for me and and something that I have looked to my elders and mentors for and other musicians and colleagues that I get to work with is this conscious choice to never stop learning and never feeling like you're too old, it's too late, um, you're too far down this career path to try new things. You know, I remember being in high school or early in college and various teachers of mine going, oh, I'm going to take lessons with so-and-so and me thinking at the time, oh, that's kind of odd, you're a teacher why are you taking lessons with someone? And now that I am a teacher, it's like, oh my God, like that's amazing that they were still doing that and still feeling like they wanted to feed that part of themselves and gather more information and have more, add more to the palette. Yeah. Well, that's the benefit of the guest artist stuff. Cause like, I'll gladly learn from them. That's right. Like that's that, right. not just for my students. <laughs> yeah. And I have no shame. I have no shame yeah. when it comes to things like that. We brought in this guy once and he's this amazing jazz drum set player and he's just like killing it. And they're like, uh, professor Elsner, can you do that? And I was like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> no, the answer is no kid. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to front. Like I know. it. Oh yeah. Well, can you show us? Uh, not right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could do that, but you'd have to switch yeah. the drum set over. You don't want to waste know. time doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, did you now um when you were in high school and you're and you're kind of picking up all the stuff, are you is there a marching band portion for this? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I played percussion. We had, I went to a high school that had the full on straight out of, I, I have not seen this movie, but it is not a, a far off uh, drum line, full on like hyper competitive marching band. That was like, we had band camps all over the summers. You know, it was like DCI level commitment. You know, it's like, come on out, you're going to paint, you do body paint and sunglasses. And it's going to be this litmus test by how like burned you are. And, you know, it's going to be all this like chops burning stuff. And we did all of the marching and all the steps and the, and all the stick tricks and back sticking. And um, yeah, so I did it. And <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, it's, been a long time. Um, but 
I know people have mixed feelings about marching band and pep band and stuff like that. And to me, I, I certainly feel like I wouldn't be the musician I am today without having participated in that. And I don't even make that statement um, directly correlated to the genre itself as much as just, and, you know, we can, I don't want to go down that path of like kids these days don't have a work ethic or whatever, you know, they're soft. Um, but I do believe that boy, at that time, that kind of discipline and that kind, you know, that, that those, those expectations and and the required amount of time and effort and things that we had to put it, and you just didn't question it, you just did it, certainly informed my, my current worth work ethic. Um, so, uh, I do believe that there are lessons to be learned from everything we do. And um, I mean, it certainly, certainly build up, built up my chops at the time. And um, uh, it, who doesn't like an adrenaline rush? Who doesn't, who doesn't like that feeling of like, oh, you won. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it's important with things like that. And this is just my personal opinion to with students that really get super into that to to temper that with now listen you have to have a wide skill set to be marketable and to you know be employed in the future it's not just going to be you go into drum corps and that's the rest of your life i mean in some ways that is true if you teach like you can find a way to make that a a career but yes no. playing Yes. No. You age out and, no. you know, there's only so many uh, guys that can and, and gals that can can do those jobs and, um, you know, for how long and and sometimes they're seasonal. They're not necessarily year round. And and yeah. so, yeah, I mean, not just limited to to drumline or, or um, you know, uh, marching band, but um, anything we do, I do as as we have discussed, feel it's just super important to have as wide a variety of skills available. I mean, how many times do we walk into a job and it's like, okay, well, we're going to need you to play drum kit on this and who in here can play um, uh, a, a, a tumbao on the congas and, um, you know, sometimes even can you sit down and play this thing on the piano? Mm -hmm. uh, that certainly comes up. And so just to, to constantly work on your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Aside from the music stuff. Yeah. Were you doing anything else to fill out your time, sports, student government, church, anything else that, that you were doing? In high school? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was really into sports. Um, I really, really, really loved soccer. Mm. And so I played soccer throughout my childhood and through high school. And then when I was living in New York, I tried so many times to find like leagues and things in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And I know they existed, but they were just these kind of sporadic things. And I could never really find like a non-competitive adult co-ed thing to, yeah. to be a part of. And so fortunately, when I came to St. Louis, uh, about six years ago, I found this place called Veta that is an indoor like soccer dome and they have these adult leagues. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was like, sign me up. Yes, finally. 
And so I joined a co-ed team called Balls to the Wall. That's awesome. <laughs> I would I, that would be I would love if that was an all female team. <laughs> that would have been the best. I totally agree. <laughs> amazing. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, but okay, it was really, it was really mixed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I played and I, oh God, just, it was so awesome. And then COVID hit and it shut down. And then I tried to get back in or just kind of check in, check back in with them maybe like a year ago. And they're, they just don't have enough people and, you know, to try to find enough teams that are adults that want to play recreational that aren't, you know, that are still willing to play indoors unmasked. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, so, so wah, wah. Um, I also um, ran on my school track team. Okay. Yeah. I did long distance mm-hmm. and um, I'm, I'm tall ish. I think, People always think I'm taller than I am. I'm actually only five eight, but I get that's certainly not short for for a girl. Yeah. Uh, but I was taller earlier on, and so all of my PE coaches were always like, "You should play basketball." Mm-hmm. It's like, eh. and so I did a little bit of. My parents sent me to a basketball camp, um, so I did a little bit of basketball, and I actually won a trophy for the most consecutive free throws. I think it was like hey. 70, I think it was like seventy two. Nice. <laughs> really good. Yeah. So uh, I did that. Um, uh, I was on a swim team for a bit. Um, backstroke was my thing. Um, played some tennis for a while. So I, I really always enjoyed being physically active, and I still do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that. Uh, anything else outside of that side of sports? No, that between yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. What was your what was your typical soccer? Where, where in on the field were you usually? I mean, I kind of moved between forward and fullback. Okay, yeah. Because um, usually the the height they put in the back line. Uh, I was yes, I I I certainly didn't want to play goalie. Jeez yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm stoked about St. Louis getting the soccer dome. And, right. Yeah. 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 Very, very exciting. Yeah. I, and I'm a huge. Speaking of sports, huge hockey fan. Oh yeah. I am a massive St. Louis Blues fan. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> you, you actually have a you have a title that you were pretty. pretty I know. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were only the most. Uh, you know, like, I don't know if it was like historically disappointing franchise for a long time, but you were in, in the, in the conversation. It's true. It's true. And these little fair weather fans that turn their backs on the team. Oh, they'll never, they always get into the playoffs. They get the playoffs. They just don't yeah. do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah. How do you like, like them now? Yeah. So, yeah, so of course I went to the parade and all the celebrations and things when that happened. It was so much fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm I'm from New York. I, I'm an Islanders fan. Oh. But I have to say, you all winning in Boston in Game Seven. I like. I was for sure very very excited by this. <laughs> 
That's funny. Uh, a, a friend of mine took me to an Islanders game once at Madison Square Garden. It was great. We had, you know, seats right by the ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, hockey's hockey. So I'll watch any any hockey team, any any game. Nice. And all the hockey movies, you know, like Goon and... Clapshot is, is Clap still shot, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so it's so politically incorrect, but oh my gosh, it is is it funny? Hilarious, <laughs> yes, yes. And it's like, I mean, come on, what other sport do they get? You know, uh, ripped across the the jaw, go into the locker room, get stitched up, and come back out and play. Right. You know, the, even with soccer, it's like, oh, my God, I'm injured. I'm dying, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. carry me off the field. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. They're, they're just so gritty. And I really, I really dig that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I always, the thing, the follow up, though, on the soccer part is, is like, it is very exhausting. Yeah, true. <laughs> like, like, if you actually, if you're running that much and you get, you take any kind of shot, it's going to hurt. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And I don't know if you've ever, so have you played, are you a soccer player? I, I played when I was in like growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So I always played outdoors. And so this whole foray yeah. into the indoor world for me, Jesus, I remember the first night we had a game, someone like tried to score a goal from the other team and man, that ricochet off the back wall, it yeah. was like a gunshot. It's like, oh, you're right. Cannonball. It's like, Jesus, a broken rib. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh. I sign up for here. I thought this was going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. You take, you take one, someone misses a ball and kicks you in the shin and it's like you, the pain is that's right. It well, hurts. Like, <laughs> girl that broke her ankle on our team. Yeah. And uh, it's always like, really? I've had friends play adult recreational hockey that I've gone and seen their games. And then my experience with this, with this adult recreational soccer, that yeah. sometimes it's like, you know, folks getting so, uh, you know, uh, irate about things. And it's like, yeah. guys, this is pay to play pay to play adult like recreational sport calm down yeah and so someone yeah this this girl broke her ankle and and someone on the other team was like good she had it coming you know and it's like what like this person's seriously injured wow i don't okay this isn't um we're not salaried you know yes (laughs) (laughs) tell me again where you end up going to undergrad so I went to the new school in, in Manhattan, which is, you know, originally called the new school for social research. And it was a school uh, that started in the seventies and was really kind of born of a, a, a kind of a, a, a collective of students at that time wanting more um, of a say and wanting more of a democratic approach to education. And so they developed this, this school where the students um, had more um, autonomy, had more of a voice in how things were run. And so it was this progressive place. And then um, over the years, the school developed and uh, became the, just the new school university. And, um, under the umbrella of that is a series of other colleges, Parsons School of Design, 
um, Manus College of Music, the graduate school, um, and and things like that. So now it's it's a pretty large operation. So how are you aware of the school? At the time that I was auditioning for schools, I auditioned at um, Manhattan School of Music, Juilliard, and New School. And I think probably at the time it was just like, what are the major conservatories in New York City? Like and you just wanted to go to New York. I did. I did. And people were like, you really should consider some other schools. And so the only other school I, I auditioned at um, to, to, to kind of indulge that was um, Cal Arts. Oh, okay. <laughs> the other, the other side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the other coast. Yeah, yeah. And so I went out to Cal Arts and stayed with the with the head of the department, the percussion department, who was so nice and hospitable. And gosh, he was just great. And um, took me around, and I had played my audition in his house with his family and everything. And and through kind of talking through my desires and things with him, he was like. I, you know, I shouldn't really say this, but I think you're better off in New York than out here. Like this just isn't, you know, especially at that time, it was a pretty laid back place. Um, they were doing a lot of like new music. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was really big on wanting to pursue some more orchestral stuff and kind of traditional, like the traditional track. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciated that. And I really appreciate that in life with anyone that's just that authentic, sure. uh, you know, that he wasn't like, come here, I need recruits. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, who are you? Let me sit down and have a conversation with you. You know what? I, I think that this is actually a better choice for you. And it really made me have tremendous respect for him. And so, yeah, so I went back to, to New York and uh, I would have been happy at any of those schools. I got into them and and then new school gave me basically almost a full ride. And so it was uh, no brainer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when you get there, well, first of all, who are you studying with there? So at the time I was studying with um, Jim Price and God, he's just mm, someone that it, I get emotional thinking about because he was just this super warm guy that was like self-effacing and and maybe not self-deprecating but certainly humble and was just a monster of a player an absolute trendsetter in what he did he was in the original manhattan marimba quartet he played with the brooklyn brooklyn philharmonic for years um he played with um all all of the major orchestras in in the city and uh, just a very um, bohemian. He he would he would come in with his big um, oh gosh, what are those 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 old um, Stanley thermoses? Mm -hmm. and, yeah, like, I know. <laughs> this big Stanley thermos of coffee, uh -huh. and I I think you know he was probably at the time vegan and and just um, just a very unique individual. I had never met anyone like him, and a very deep thinker and always knew how to relate to and work with students. Uh, certainly in New York and in my program, there were students from all the foreign countries. Mm -hmm. I mean, students from like Americans were the minority in, in those schools. And so um, he just had such a, a way to really reach everyone and bring out the best in everyone's playing 
um, very nurturing. And so he was my teacher at the time uh, for my freshman and sophomore year. And then my junior and senior years, I studied with Glenn Velez. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's another guy who's just like, God, talk about mild mannered and, you know, um, maybe not demure, but, but, oh, yes, true. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly not arrogant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, God, look at that range of abilities from his throat singing and, you know, ability to play all of those frame drums. And I got to study. Um, oh Don't forget God. the double-sided tambourine. That's oh. right. Well, and I still have, I mean, I've got several drums and, and things that he's given, that he gave me and I got to play some gigs with him, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, this guy that again, like trendsetter, jet setter, um, going around before anyone was doing any of those things. I mean, really just laying the groundwork for all of that, you know, Middle Eastern and Arabic and Southern Indian and Northern Italian hand and frame drumming and creating early videos and things and just this amazing resource then and now. Yeah. And yet you can go talk to him and it's like, oh, so, so it's, it's such a pleasure to meet you. And you know, there's no errors about him. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love to joke about this. And I hope when I tell this that it doesn't come across like he was um, commanding because he, he's not at all, but I would have lessons in his apartment. Um, it was near one of my favorite old restaurants on the Upper West Side called Big Nick's. And Big Nick's was a diner, kind of burger joint. And they had a, a location on the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side. And it was like your old school, like almost like 1950s-ish diner with like this crazy, like hundred piece menu painted on the wall. You know, it's like ostrich burgers and, you know, buffalo and whatever. His apartment was right around the corner. And you'd walk into it and, you know, you just felt all of a sudden like you were in this like, zen garden and and it was like take your shoes off now let's walk in five and you're going to talk in seven and 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 you know let's not even touch the drums until you can you know really master you know um speaking all of these different kind of syllabic things almost like conical um you know south indian mm -hmm. uh, uh syllabic uh, rhythms just uh, taking me in a whole new direction that I had not ever explored and loved. And, you know, to this day, it's like, my God, all the things that I learned with him, if only I had 50 hours a day <laughs> to devote to doing right. taka doom, taka doom. <laughs> uh I you know I could see myself myself still just doing that. I found some old recordings of mine. Um I I did a couple I I mentioned to you earlier. I did a couple of these interviews um recently on NPR and mm -hmm. the first one I did they asked if there were any if I had any recordings of me playing the tambourine. I did. I just didn't know where they were because it's so long ago. And I found these old recordings of like my senior recital in New York. And at the time studying with him, I was doing all this stuff on Rick and studying like there was some great tunes by this by this group called the Zuryab Trio. 
And it was a guy playing Oud and then a guy playing um, Rick and um, uh, just awesome stuff. And, you know, kind of the dexterity necessary for that and really getting all the tones down and listening back to those recordings. It's like, damn, I don't know that I could sound like that now. Sure. You really have to like be in that zone and, and, and work it up to, to, to really kind of master those things. And so I have the utmost respect for him. Do you feel, I know you're like, you're explaining a little bit of what, of what you were covering, you know, as a student, but I mean, with, were, were there approaches about like, were they very, were there, was there like a lot of technique focus? Were they thinking like, you're going to come here and like, you need to think of this as a blank slate and we're going to just kind of start over or were they like, you have something to work that we can work with and we're going to push you forward. That's a real, that's an excellent question. It's funny. Um, the joke that I always, you, when you're, when you're kind of prompting these, these memories, these trips down memory lane, yeah. um, you know, as you know, this school, it's like, yeah, it was a series of buildings like off, Amsterdam Avenue off Columbus Avenue. And so when people are like, oh, were you in a sorority? It's like, yeah, my college experience was like people dressed in black smoking clove cigarettes. <laughs> that was, there was no, there was no football team. Yes. Um, no, there were just angsty, you know, moody musicians standing outside a building chain smoking and then going. And they were the pleasant ones. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> they were the ones you actually wanted to hang out. That's with. exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's like, yeah, we're going to go get like a cafe con leche at this Cuban place. And then we're going to come back and practice. And then we're going to go get, you know, some Turkish coffee from here. And then everyone's going to go down, you know, just this mixture of cultures and people. And, and so everyone was to your point, everyone was kind of coming in at a different place. Like, you know, you'd have, I remember going to school with uh, both a, a Korean and Japanese uh, student, several actually, and they were using, you know, um, totally different types of marimba grip. And so they're coming in at that stage, some of them doing maybe like a professional certificate track and you don't go like, no, you will change to Stevens group. And some people it's like, well, I've been studying, you know, timpani in Dresden. Okay. Uh, no, I, I got it. That's a good specific one on that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Turn the drums around. No, H is not B. <laughs> You know, so, so I think just be the, the, the sheer nature of it being in this metropolis, attracting students from, from around the world that had all had totally different life experiences and, and, and styles of playing to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they did just kind of take everyone where they were at. No, there was no, for sure, no, this is kind of the trajectory you will all go on. And it's the same for every one of you. Right. Um, it was definitely more, who are you? What do you want to get out of this? There were very high expectations. Certainly we had to play, you know, semester juries and things, and we all were required to play in major ensembles and in percussion ensemble and all of those things, but no one didn't want to do that. And so you had there like people that were super like, I am going to win an orchestra job. All I want to do is play excerpts. Yeah. You had people there that were like, 
I just want to have a chair on Broadway. So mm-hmm. I just want to do musical theater stuff. Right. Um, and and uh, people that were really into new music. I just want to do experimental things. I want to do nothing that was written, you know, later than uh, two weeks. 20th century. Yeah, <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I haven't thought about this in a while. I've played in, in so many different chamber groups in my life. And one I played in when I was, God, 22 years old. And it was a group called Synchronia. And that group was a nonprofit. And our funding came from these donors that would only fund it if it if we played things written within the last five years. Mm. So all the repertoire had to be. And of, co- of course it was awesome. Yeah. Like, yeah, all these fresh pieces and cool things and I I have a trio that I'm in now um, called uh, Trio Monkopotamus, and uh, it's a good name. I like. Yeah, it. <laughs> <laughs> it's myself and two other guys. Um, one is a, a guy who is mostly a jazz drum set player, and then the other guy is a guy that is a, an all around percussionist. Um, but also who specializes in tabla. He lived in India for a while and studied tabla. And we forged this trio uh, about a year and a half ago because we all play together in so many other capacities that are so straightforward and so scripted that it was like, man, we all really enjoy each other's company. We have all this professional respect for one another. We, We crack up all the time when the three of us are on these jobs why don't we like just put something together, like even casually at first where we can just like get together, hang out, shoot the shit and play cool stuff that we all enjoy and just want to play. And so we were all on board to do it. And so we, we got together and we started meeting weekly and playing like all kinds of cool stuff some with larger um, improvisatory sections within the pieces, some pieces that are, you know, full on legit pieces in their own right. Um, But most of them still fairly contemporary. Um, And so because we all teach at various colleges, it kind of made sense initially to just do like faculty recitals. And Mm -hmm. so we've played on a few of these faculty recitals as this trio and then we performed at a summer camp and then um, as part of another concert series. And so we've we've had about four or five performances at this point in the last year. Mm-hmm. And it's been awesome. And so that's another thing that I love doing and want to keep going. It's It's interesting because all three of us, although we are enamored with the idea of doing this, we're all three also incredibly busy people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So some of the time, you know, we want to kind of make sure that we strike that balance between keeping it fresh and interesting and not burdening any of the three of us with like, Oh God, I don't have time to practice or, you know, "Mm, I'm just wasting everyone's time because I'm the one that showed up this week and I didn't learn my part and you guys did. And, it wasn't because this person was like sitting around. It's because they were teaching like 17 lessons and had, you know, recording session and whatever. So um, it is something that we want to continue doing. And is uh, it's, it's just another thing, as you know, like 
that for me, or going to things like PASIC, or I mean, it could be anything really, but just doing something that strays from the normalcy of what we do in general as musicians in our lives, right. in our teaching career, in our performing career, that that really kind of speaks to something um, new and and really does kind of fuel that, oh, Yes, this is re- this reinvigorates what I'm doing. As you mentioned, kind of an appreciation of where everyone else is coming from. Like you're all, I'm going to guess you're all probably near each other's age, or at least have have enough time in the business to kind of know what the deal is. That's right. To, like explain everything. That's right. We're all about 26. <laughs> exactly. Right. Maybe 26 <laughs> and a half. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And we'll finish out our interview with Aaron Elsner next week. So stay tuned. This week's rave is a classic twofer and one of those rare cases where I'll discuss both the book and the movie. In this instance, both things are titled Being There. Originally written as a novel by Jerzy Kaczynski in 1971, and the film, Being There, from 1979, starring Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine and directed by Hal Ashby. I'd recently read Kaczynski's much-lauded novel, The Painted Bird, which was very good, but thought I'd also read his very short but good novel at the time. The story of both book and film centers on a man named Chance, who lived as a gardener for a very rich person who recently passed away. Chance never left the residence, only worked on the garden, had his meals served to him by staff and clothing bought for him by his benefactor, and spent all of his time watching TV as his connection to the world. And that was it. He never got sick, had no records of any family connections, and never had to visit any outside entity at all. And the story follows of what happens when he has to encounter the outside world after his rich person passes away. And he is doing so with limited outside knowledge and finds that well-connected folks he literally runs into find his directness incredibly refreshing, and that changes his life in a number of ways. It's also about, particularly at that point in the 1970s, the ways that TV, again, the thing that he derived all of his knowledge from, can make someone a celebrity who has no interest in being a part of that life. Oddly enough, even as I'm thinking about this, I have to realize that only a white man would get this kind of break. Anyway, the book is clear, compact, and well-written. It does a great job of explaining more about Chance's state of mind, his lack of curiosity, his interest in staying on the one job, and what happens when you go through life that way. Also, the movie is really good. While Peter Sellers was always known as a comic actor for his work on movies like Dr. Strangelove and the Pink Panther movies from the 1960s and 70s, his Oscar-nominated performance here is in a role that requires both comedy and drama. I'm fairly sure you would consider this his acting highlight, and it is one of the last things he made prior to his death in 1980. His ability to inhabit this rather unthinking role 
and completely be there, as the title suggests, is tremendous. Kudos also need to go to Shirley MacLaine, who plays one of the folks who takes Chance in after he leaves that first house and takes a liking to him in a situation that is not reciprocated in a role that Shirley MacLaine really inhabits very well. I should note the pace of the movie does not match that of the quickness of the book, but it makes complete sense for the mood of the film, which matches the pace of Chance's thinking or lack of thinking. It's definitely a movie both of its time, but it's still worth it. Check out both Being There by Jerzy Kaczynski and the Hal Ashby film Being There. They are well worth your time. And that's the show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next week for part two with Aaron Elsner. Until then.